Let's talk JMMA with Charlie Jewett from Sogo-Kaku.com. This is a podcast about the deep end of Japanese combat sports scene. I'm your host, Shu Hirata from On the Road Management. Now, let's begin. Happy New Year, Charlie. Happy New Year and happy birthday to you, Shu. Thank you. And happy New Year to all of our listeners. This is our first episode of 2022. Yes. And uh, I guess I'm assuming you were at the Saitam Super Arena on December 31st, right? I was. Uh, I was there with 22,500 people. And it's been a while since I've been to the arena with that many people. And you oh, forget wow. how crowded the hallways get. <laughs> <laughs> but that's great, though, that, you know, in the time of pandemic, yes. when the Japanese government is super sensitive, right, about everything. Mm-hmm. I think oh, it's... Yeah, it was definitely nice. This I mean, it's got to be the biggest, uh, off the top of my head, it has to be the biggest event mm-hmm. they've had since the pandemic era started. Yeah. I, mean, even, so... I think even Sakakibara mentioned in a comment that with Omicron... Mm-hmm. Then they might have to go back to start like um, limited seating again. So I think he was kind of happy to squeeze this in before restrictions might get raised again. You know, I can't believe Japanese governments are doing that. I mean, I'm looking at the Japanese news from the states, and 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 even news spends way too much time talking about pandemics and Omicron yeah. all kinds of stuff. I mean, that should be more shouldn't be more than ten seconds. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, especially since Japan has such low cases. It's like 39 people a day. It's like Yeah, exactly. I can't believe some right, like some city hall are holding a press conference for finding a two people who is infected, right? Omicron and stuff. But anyway, so let's talk MMA and let's talk about this then. Shibata Kubo controversy. I think starting off with the elephant in the room. Oh Jesus. Yeah, all right. So let's let's review what happened. What happened was um Kubo's wife's brother, which is Kubo's, I guess, brother-in-law, revealed that uh, Shibata and Kubo had some communication prior to the fight. Right. Mm -hmm. And what is it? Is this, and I guess in this uh, communication between LINE, which is like a WhatsApp in in Asia, uh, I guess Shibata asked uh, Kubo to go easy on the first round. No hitting face, right? Just kicking. Right. Yeah. So, through a series of like tweets that may or may not be connected in those messages, it looks like they had agreed to kind of take it easy during the first round. Okay. I think some of the messages or I mean, Kubo even has already spoken about it on a podcast. Uh-huh. I think that the agreement was like no punches to the face in the first yeah. round. Yeah. Let's okay. just do body and low blow and low kicks, make it fun and exciting. And then, Let's just really go for it in the second round, which okay. it, it makes sense because I imagine they were trying to get as much time on Fuji TV as possible, right? Because they're both trying to promote their YouTube channels, uh-huh. and rumors started. I think the biggest one was her, his brother-in-law, kind of releasing those screenshots. Right. And then oh, yeah. the, there's a sponsor for the match who was like a dental clinic, who was mm-hmm. one of Kubo's sponsors, who since deleted them and had tweets like. I'm looking around. I'm looking forward to seeing you guys fight two rounds tomorrow and stuff like that. And then after the fight, seemed kind of upset that mm-hmm. it didn't go two rounds. 
just I think that they thought that they were going to have their sponsorship on TV for longer might be the deal. And now Kubo is essentially, I mean, if it is his audio on that podcast, which I believe it is, he's essentially confirmed that the idea was we're just going to take it easy, like have like a feeling out first round, have some fun, which kind of makes sense now why Shibatar was able to fall for his knees and like beg, like play beg for him not to hurt him. He did the pressing gig, yeah. I mean, right, without Kubo kicking his head off mm-hmm. in the opening round. Right, he should have done that because he could suck a kick to the head, right? I mean, yeah, exactly. Also, um, it makes sense that why Kubo was so surprised by the stoppage mm-hmm. because I think his idea was we're just going to make it look fun for the first round. And then the fight got stopped, which is why he seemed genuinely confused mm-hmm. after the end of the fight. I thought he was confused because he was saying he didn't tap, which he didn't, his second through the talon which may also think that Miata didn't know about this agreement and saw a guy that outweighed his fighter by 30 pounds wrenching an arm bar and was like, I'm not going to let Kubo get his arm destroyed. So. You know, on top of that, I did actually look, uh, did watch the YouTube. Uh, there's another, some ex-businessman who is a, a Kubo's friend, and they were talking on the cell phone, and it was Kubo explaining that the Shibata even actually explained to Kubo that the uh, if he gets hit in the head, it might cause him some damage. <laughs> so that he wants to go, you know, wants uh, Kubo to go easy and blah blah blah. But the very interesting thing is this: Kubo also explained that he had some another fight confirmed, like about a week before this rising show, but it fell through. Really, now, this was a second opportunity, and he didn't want to say no because, according to Kubo. That he was he arranged all these other people to in you know, walk in with him and walk out and Sarah, his wife, has all this costume and you know, singing gig the set and everything else. So and he also wanted to fight. So he accepted it without even really discussing a full details. Right. And that's so Japanese MMA because you know, I warn this to all my clients, but sometimes even my clients, they accept a fight without checking how much they're getting paid. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's, it's kind of amazing, right? It's in, in America, yeah. it's common, or anywhere in the world, when you maybe the first question uh, that anybody asks, right? And, and and any offer you get, they'll tell you how much, right? They wouldn't pay what's the fee, blah blah blah, purse, show money, win bonus, whatever, right? But in in Japanese MMA, it's actually very common for a matchmaker or promoter to contact the fighter and ask, "Hey, are you willing to fight for this guy on this date on this show?" And you, if you ask, "Oh, how much?" Most of the time, these type of promoters will tell you, well, I want to check with you that if you're willing to fight this guy first. (laughs) So the majority of fighters say, oh, yes, I'm willing to. And they will consider that as accepting a fight. (laughs) But that's not really the way to go, right? (laughs) Right. Well, it reminds me of what, wasn't there an old Bob Sapp controversy where they didn't even want to let him sign the contract till after the fight? Mm -hmm. So it kind of reminds me. Reminds me of yeah, stuff that's happened in the past. Exactly, and and one way to actually look at it is like in the Japanese community, it, like in the business, it's not like that with all the top businesses, obviously. But the ma- majority of a business still see contract as a, just the uh, formality, right? You know, yeah, and that's why a lot of people believe that even though you sign the contract, you think you can revise it later, and that's something it's very common. You know, what I mean? It is interesting, and a lot of contract I see from sponsors from Japan, there are a few clauses that it's just not possible. 
You know, like for example, yeah. they're asking you to put this logo on shorts, but you can't do that if you go to UFC, obviously, right? So I will ask, well, can you put a closing and say, but accept UFC. Now, majority of sponsors reply to me as saying this, well, you know, but shoot, all the other athletes sign the same contract, including blah, 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 who has fought in UFC. So they didn't honor what this one line, but they didn't care because it's only for formality. You know what I mean? So for me to ask to put this extra line, says accept UFC, sometimes they took it as a rude. You know, so yeah. it's a different, yeah, it's a different culture, you know? Is that kind of like, I remember back when one of the things that the UFC was upset about when they purchased Pride, was mm-hmm. that a bunch of the contracts that the fighters had expired? Like significantly before they purchased them, is this one of the reasons why? Is just like a I wouldn't be surprised. Actually, I wouldn't be surprised because um, let me tell you this: that this very famous episode, I can't tell you who, but one of the very popular Pride fighter got on this very popular variety show in Japan, and he was so excited when he got offered, so he said yes. I forgot to ask how much he's getting paid. And he got on the show. He went through the taping. He forgot to ask how much he's getting paid. So he asked his manager, hey, how much am I getting paid? So manager finally calls the production company and says, so how, by the way, how much was his fee for make, making this national appearance on prime television, you know, like the big time spot? And the answer was, how much do you want? <laughs> so it's, it's you know it's actually a comment you know, even in the entertainment world it does never fly i feel like stateside oh, never in the states yeah. right anyway so go back to kubo and shibata so kubo said he accepted a fight without really going through you know discussions and detail blah 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 and so it's very common mm-hmm. and he says he got this all of a sudden he got a message through instagram from shibata himself that's when he started to discussing. I don't know when this discussing stage has switched to the line, but he said that he started to discussing on Instagram direct messages. And he thought the first, you know, Shibata was playing with him. Yeah. But yeah, Shibata said he's willing to write, put this in writing and sign, right. snap everything, you know? I think Kubo even said he's going to release his own YouTube video that has, like, audio recordings or something. Exactly. He, re- right, taped the recording. I mean, he recorded it, right, the entire conversation. So, I mean, do what do you think? I mean, I, I guess I'm 54 years old, so I'm not in their generations, but it seems like in the younger generation, they like to go directly to the public immediately through social networks. But right. way so, sometimes some of the things would be much better if you plan it out. You know, if you use it as a negotiations and all yeah. kinds of stuff. Well, I guess you have to start with the basic thought of like, what is Kubo's end goal? Uh-huh. Like, what does he think complaining about all of this publicly is going to get him? Because if anything, my immediate reaction is it's just going to piss Rising off and make <sighs> Rising not interested in having him fight for them in the future. You know, I think that's a normal thinking right from our westerners point of view but i think in the japanese mma world who has this little vague line between pro wrestling and and, yeah. and mma and also the fact i guess youtuber well, has this privilege that anything goes right? it's not it's not that, that they have the agreement that i think he's gonna piss rising off i think that it's he's blasting about it all over social media oh i know that's what's going to piss them off as well as more getting at Mm-hmm. But he's bringing remember, much Shibata, Shibata blasted a Sakibara and Rising for being a bad businessman and their slow negotiations and blah 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 prior to fight too, right? And right, 
Yeah. But I think Shibatar is kind of in a different position because he's kind of in a position of power. Mm-hmm. And that coming off of last year's New Year's Eve, where he was out question, had the most watched and popular fight on that card. Exactly. I think Rising, he knows that Rising is continually in a ratings war You're on right. New Year's Eve, and they needed him more than the other way around. Exactly, because they could actually price Shibata in a correct way when they negotiate with Fuji Television for the license fee, right? right? Because mm-hmm. I guess on the TV ratings, they decide everything on that. So if you know 7% was scored by Shibata's fight highest, it's just only compared to the other station, that's how much you get paid. And he even said publicly he will only fight next year if he gets a million dollars. I mean... You know? Well, yeah, because, I mean, it's crazy because his first fight, I think, has over 7 million views on YouTube. Mm-hmm. It's, like, clearly one of the most fight watched fights in Rising's history. Right. And they were trying to pay him, like, $50,000 or something? I think they offered him, like, twenty, yeah. and ended up being fifty, where he thought that that's the, his value on the market. I don't know if he gets that standard value, but I think that's how he felt. But now he feels... And he also said that Rising mentioned that there may be a possibility he may be able to fight Jake Paul. So that's the reason he stayed with the organization. Stayed, meaning, you know, quote unquote, right. stayed, meaning, yeah. Uh, stayed. But he also, I think he recently said, what, in the post fight, that he's not interested in fighting Jake Paul anymore. I mean, who knows? He's a right, YouTuber, exactly. pro wrestler that's going to say a bunch of crazy stuff. But he's no longer interested in that fight because now I think he thinks that Jake Paul would just hurt him. <laughs> so, um, he said Jake Paul's gotten too strong for him. So. But, I mean, right. he'll change his tune if the money gets offered, I imagine. Mm-hmm. Now, this is, I think, I have this question. I could see why fighters like Ben Askren and Woodley took a fight against Jake, even though they're significantly smaller. And it's yeah, not like absolutely. they're a seasoned boxers. You know what I mean? That's because they were getting millions of dollars. So right. my question here is, how much is Kubo getting paid here? You know? My initial thought is, I mean, if Shibitar is getting paid, if Shibitar had to fight to get 50, mm-hmm. I don't think Kubo is getting paid that much at all. I think no. he sees it as an opportunity to promote his, him and his wife's YouTube channel on national television mm-hmm. and for his wife's somewhat obsession with starting a music career. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? But that's a mentality of a... This is my opinion, but it's a mentality of a, a unknown comedian who wants to crack into the Fuji Television's uh, big right. variety show. They will take the gig for free. You know what I mean? Because right. they're willing to go, and after that, they'll get a spotlight, so they'll make good money after that. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that's the Kubo's right way, because he's a K1 champion. I'm telling you, he's a, the, right. more than a legit kickboxer. He, he's one of the best. You know, the well, People know him. Right. Yeah. So the fact is, I mean, his, right. his wife comes from what a very wealthy family. So yeah. it's not as if they're doing this to get rich. I think it's more that they're trying to build up their. I think he's trying to build up like a post-fight career of being a comedian or being like some sort of YouTube gimmick act with his wife, and this is all them trying to get free publicity. Publicity essentially. I, I get that. I get the whole concept, but it's still. Yeah. It's a huge spot on New Year's Eve. This is when, yeah. like, I mean, it's almost like this is, I think, Mr. Shin Aoki said in the Japanese MMA, it's all about New Year's Eve. 
Everybody right. is trying to fight that show, except the, those guys who wants to go to UFC and blah blah blah. But right, so mm-hmm. this is it. This is the biggest stage. So yeah, it's literally not? like the Super Bowl of MMA for exactly. So why not right. demand the money? Because and especially, especially when the, if really the his other fight fell through a week before the show, yeah, you know, and, and the Rising came up with this offer. And you know, it's so funny in, 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 in my mentality, or majority of probably American mentality, on that situation, you ask for more money, right? Because this is like short notice in, in fight fair through. It's not my fault. But in the Japanese mentality, it's the other way around. You're supposed to feel appreciated. The promoter worked so hard to find another opponent, although the guy is 20 kilo over. Yeah. I mean, really, if I were his manager, I would never take that fight. Never. Well, I think the only saving grace is it's not a real MMA fight, right? It's like a <laughs> customs <laughs> rules right, right, crazy right. thing. Right. Mm-hmm. right. So now, now, do you think, I mean, what do you think? I mean, I, I even saw Shibata even posted a video and saying that that communication on the line is fake. and mm-hmm. But he said, even though it's true that, that Kubo had an obligation to honor the agreement because nothing signed and everything else. So he had a, every right to go for the fucking finish from the, I'm sorry for the French, every, you know, moment of the first round, you know, even well, though yeah, they supposedly promised to not go for the head. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, the more it's just, we don't know enough information yet. The more pessimistic or like paranoid side of me is saying like, oh, they're just trying to get even more attention by talking about all this stuff now. Mm-hmm. trying to get more YouTube views because they're each going to make videos talking about it and generate a bunch of attention about their fight after it happened. But no. then... Yeah, go ahead, yeah. There's also the possibility that, I mean, there was this agreement and now Shibutar is just denying it, which seems like it'd be a stupid move if Kubo has the receipts that he says he has. Or, or Kubo is just not that smart either. Like, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> Well, I mean, I don't know if the Kubo knew that his brother-in-law had intention to reveal that to the public to begin with, but the whole thing, they should have planned well, right? Well, I mean, how did the brother-in-law get the screenshots? I'm like, exactly, there's so many yeah, questions yeah, I have. I mean, he had to know, right? But of course, yeah. I mean, the whole thing had to be planned better. Right. <laughs> like, but, I mean, they could have used that in negotiation. I mean... I would also like to say that, like, it shouldn't be blown out of proportion. It doesn't seem like this was... Like pro wrestling match fixing, it seems like it was just let's just wait, let's just take it easy in the first round and really go at it in the second round. It seems like more like a gentleman's agreement, right? To get as much time on Fuji TV as possible, and that potentially Shibatar just said, Screw that, I'm gonna sucker punch you and then go for a flying arm bar, right? Right? So it's it wasn't really fixed, right? Quote unquote. Right. And also in the Japanese pro wrestling world, you you know that even though it was supposed to be a show, there were a few case, more than a few cases that he went to the real shoot fighting too. So I guess I mean, isn't theory, that how that famous pro wrestler was murdered by a yakuza? Um, Riki Dozan? Yeah, the guy that fought Riki Dozan when he fought he Kitamura. Kitamura, the judo guy yeah. who tapped out Horion Gracie. Right, he yeah. made it a real fight without telling Kimura, and then exactly, right. the yakuza guy like pee on a knife and stab him and he died of an infection <laughs> well actually the person who stabbed Rikidozan, i personally saw him i'm not going to say i met him but i saw him <laughs> because he was actually pretty famous at the later end of his career 
it's not Korea after he came back, retired from Yakuza world. He was pretty famous for walking this little dog every morning with his mistress on this uh, little park in Dokpongi. I heard was that he just famous for being the guy that killed Ricky Dozan. Yeah, exactly. And I even know the details. What I heard was that, do you know the details? What happened was that Ricky Dozan went to the restroom and came back and they, they kind of bumped into each other. And Ricky Dozan started to beat the shit out of him. So he was on the bottom and he stacked a knife to Ikidozan's stomach, right? And what happened was Ikidozan got stabbed and got up on the stage because there was a stage there on New Latin Quarter. It's the, the club. He got up on the stage, grabbed the microphone, announced to everybody he got stabbed. Then his entourage took him to the gym instead of taking him to the hospital. <laughs> I, I, from what I understand, it's not the stab that necessarily killed him. It's he died of an no. infection. It it's resulted from the stab. Exactly. He drank water when he's not supposed to be. Is what I heard. I'm not sure because I was there, you know? Okay. Because I had heard that the guy had like gone out of his way to make the blade as dirty as possible. Mm. So that if he stabbed someone, they would get an no, infection. I don't, but... think, I don't think it was even planned. It was an accident. Right, right. I heard. Because, you know, I'm telling this right now. Like, Do you ever read the book called Tokyo Underground by Robert Whiting? No, I have not. You should pick that book up. It's it's a story about this Italian guy who made the very first pizzeria in Roppongi. Oh, interesting. And, yeah, and it's a story about the guys who came through these restaurants and you know, like mobsters, stars. Yeah, because you know, Roppongi has a very like nightlife slash yakuza image. Exactly. About it. Especially back then, after the fifties, you know, like, like you know. So it, what happens was. This guy, one of the guys who came to this restaurant was Ricky Doza. And this whole chapter was spent on how Ricky Doza was heavily connected with the Yakuza. And he even had this secret casino going on in his big house. And he had the doorbell man and the shotgun, guy with the shotgun guarding uh, you know, this oh. casino place and all kinds of stuff. So, you know, big time. Yeah, yeah. For those that are un unaware, Ricky Dozon is like is still super famous. Like, yes, most people have heard of Ricky Dozon even decades after his death. Exactly in Japan, very, very famous. And just so you know, this Tokyo Underground actually, I think Scorsese has a right to the film. Oh, right. Well, that'd be interesting. The Italian yeah. perspective of Tokyo. Exactly. I wish Scorsese makes this movie. I don't know. He, I think he bought the rights like like even twenty years ago. So I don't know what happened to him. Well, anyway. it would be his first movie about Italians in Japan. So, oh yeah, exactly. But when you you know talk about Italian mafia, who makes better movie than Scorsese, right? I mean, no one, no one. Yeah. I mean, hundred percent, yeah, yeah. But anyway, so yeah, exactly. So uh, it's just a this Kubo deal. I think it's 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 sad in a way from my point of view that. Now everybody's talking about this instead of what happened in the rising thirty three. Right. Where was a night was night of upsets. Right? Well, especially if they both release both release YouTube videos, this is mm -hmm. just going to dominate the, the internal, the Japanese coverage of the event. This is going to dominate it. Right. And so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah. Plus it seems to go directly in the face. I mean, I hated the press conference where they announced one of the fights where Sakaki Barra gave us like a 45 minute lecture on why you shouldn't go to SNS and talk about things in public. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. When he was talking about the Koji Shibatar fight, I was like, I get it. I get it. Announce the fights. You don't need to talk about this for 45 minutes. <laughs> but you know, I feel like we're going to get another one of those now.
Right. In general, you know, like how like Connor and all these guys are doing, you know, the, you know, like trash talking at the press conference or through, you know, Twitter and stuff like that. But I think these guys are much smarter the way they use it because they do only use that for quote unquote trash talk. But the right. real deals and real demands are happening and behind the doors. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Behind the scenes. That's what the Japanese fighters l- need to learn is how I feel. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, if you're going to do stuff like this, you don't want the other guy to have evidence that it happens. Right. <laughs> Especially if you're going to screw him over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And if that's the, you know, like a ace in the hole for you, you might want to keep it, right? To, to yeah. the end. I don't know why they want to just go for it. It's like a die hard kind of thing. You know? Well, I mean, if you're Kubo and you're trying to build your YouTube channel, you could have milked this oh, I know. for so many views if you just like hinted at it in mm-hmm. videos and talked about how you're going to release it in a later video or something. But No, I see that Jamie saying that apparently Kubo versus Hiroya was planned for this show. Is that why Hiroya was in Shibatar's corner? <laughs> no, I don't wait, know. wait. Oh, Hiroya. is it supposed to be Hiroya's? Re- I mean, Hiroya was in Shibatar's corner. I'm sorry, Hiroya so versus Kubo, right? Did I say Shabbat? Yeah. But point so is... Hiroya, was, I think Hiroya was supposed injured. to be a Hiroya retirement event. He's supposed to be, but, right. Supposed but Hiroya was injured. Right. And so that might have been what was supposed to happen. That would make sense because they're both former K1 fighters. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And uh, I think it also makes sense that maybe he made a decision to pull out very last minute because even though he knew injured, if he feels that he needs to do this retirement fight, so he tried to heal it to the very last minute, but he couldn't kind of stuff. Actually, it happens a lot in the Japanese German, right? So I guess that happens maybe, right? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, right, interesting, right. So, but anyway, so let's talk about the other fight because yes. you know, I think we had the great thing happen in the Rising 33. Let's talk about Ogikubo winning. I mean, yes. hats off to that guy, right? I mean... Oh, I mean... I, after the first round, mm-hmm. I thought Ogikubo was screwed because in the, in the you know, first I, round of the semifinal, right? No, it, after the first round of the night. So after the Inoue fight, I thought, oh, okay, yeah, okay. When he was going into the finals, I thought he was screwed because okay. he took a lot of damage from Naoki in the opening round. Um, mm-hmm. Now I, people I forget because the event was so long, but I mean, he was beating Naoki was beating up his leg. And it was actually low kicked him and he fell down at one point. Yeah. Okay. And was hitting him with hard punches. I mean, he had marks on his face. And right. relative to that, I thought Kai took almost no damage in the Takizawa fight mm-hmm. and exerted very little effort in it. So I thought that it would favor Kai just because of the tournament format. But Ogikubo just showed how tough he was and really just, I mean, especially in the Naoki fight, he showed how tough he was. But in the Kai fight, he surprised everybody by actually outstriking Kai, which seemed mm-hmm. very confusing to me. And the crowd, I mean, the crowd, in, at least at the arena, they liked Ogikubo. I mean, he oh, was I getting mean... probably louder applause than Kai, well, here's especially the after the fight when he got when he got engaged. Remember the comment that Ogikubo made on the press conference? Like yes, he so said that, that for the past five, six years or so, since he, you know, he couldn't make it to the UFC after the tough, not even a single day, he felt happy from the bottom of his heart. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, he had the whole audience behind him, I think. Well, you know? it's just he, it's a testament of how good Rising is doing, at, uh, I mean, especially Sato, at building the stories. Mm-hmm. Because you take a guy, and through the Rising confession and the VTRs, 
they've created this underdog story that everyone's behind. And they all just love him. And I mean, he earned it. More prop, I mean, props to him. He really, he wasn't my favorite to win the tournament. I wouldn't have put him in the top two. Maybe third. I put about maybe my third most likely to win. And mm-hmm. he blew everyone away. Well, here's what it is. Um, according to the information I have, apparently that Ogikubo told, you know, one of the person I know that when he was getting attacked on the first round, he thought that Naoki was really rushing, you know, was going okay. for full full force too much from the beginning that he knew that if he waited around that he's going to run out of gas. You know, it's a veteran thinking. He was able to weather the storm, right? Well, I think even before the fight, he was saying that he had questions about Naoki's grappling defense and his stamina. Right. And I think that, defense and, and, and cardio, right? Basically, right. Because I think he cited the one fight in Rising. I forget who it was, where Naoki fought an American guy. Uh, Trent. Uh, uh, one side, no, he, I think he questioned about Trent Garden fight, no, right? Right, right, that was the fight where he the around that he gassed out, right? Yeah, because he said in that fight he saw some holes in Nauki's game mm-hmm. that he thought he could take advantage of, right? Which I mean, it looks like he did, <laughs> right? Uh, here's what it is. Um, I mean, I, I'm Nauki's manager, of course, so I, I no excuse from the loser, you know, you should never make excuses, period, you know, mm-hmm. however. On last night's podcast on the Dropkick, uh, Cornerman, Naoki's Cornerman, Mr. Mizugaki, has revealed that, that Naoki's finger got dislocated in the first round. So, okay. so the, after the first round came to the in, in the corner, the first word he says, oh, it's dislocated. So from that moment on, things were a little off. But also, I also he felt, and also I agree with him, and from the very beginning, I think Naoki was rushing. And... Yeah. He lacked that calmness that he always needed. He always had. And even though he was good at these steps, he was only going forward. There was no side steps at all. Almost no side step at all. So bad game plan, you know, bad decision making at the certain point of the fight. So dislocation of the finger really only a small factor, you know? Yeah, can you talk? Can, I know you know a little more. Can you talk about like the future for Naoki now? But before that, I'm going to give okay, a Ogikubo once too. You know, I'm not going to reveal, but I knew that Ogikubo was not also 100%. You know, right. like, like any other veterans, you always have a problem here. And there. Well, I mean, I you think know? this event, more than most rising events, mm-hmm. was filled with fighters that were compromised physically. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There were a ton of fighters on this event who were injured, and that might just be because rising. I mean, aside from just tough training, Rising puts so many events on back-to-back near the end of the year that a lot of these fighters had like a one-month turnaround from pretty tough fights a month ago. Yeah, exactly, right. Yeah, that's it. But but it, for anyway, for Grand Prix, it's everybody's in the same condition. We knew right. this is what we have to go through. So no excuses. We all knew that you have to fight twice in one night. And I know that. I heard that Mr. Ogikubo wasn't perfect in shape till maybe a few weeks before the fight, you know. So, and same for probably the other fighters. So, in that situation, Ogikubo still grinded out, went two wins. I mean, gotta give this guy a big credit. I, I, I hope oh, yeah. this is gonna be the late, late, you know, end of his career soon, right? I mean, he's like making a last oh. run to make. Before I, before I forget, have you heard about now? Everyone in Rising is talking about the various curses in Rising. 
Mm -hmm. The most prevalent being that if they put only one person on a poster, that person loses. Ah. But have you heard about the uh, new curse is that every fighter in the tournament that had a prepared video, I think the video uh -huh. is called prepared, every fighter that had a prepared video made about them lost. Well, preparation, right. A pre yeah, every preparation video feature fighter lost. Well, yeah, except Naoki. When, they, when they, he made that, he didn't lose that next fight. I think they meant in the tournament in general. Yeah, oh, in the tournament. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah of course, essentially yeah. saying Ogikabo is one of the only fighters that didn't have one made about him. But you know, what a story, right? I, I wish Fuji Television yeah. and Rising will utilize this to make him and his wife very famous, you know. I want him to make well, good I mean, money, you know. It's Maybe a perfect get a story because, before, you know. His story has everything. I mean, right, when he right. failed to get in the UFC, his wife mm -hmm. left him. She took the kids. Oh, I know. That's... And that had to be tough. Like, And then... Essentially, there's like really no options in Japan. And then Rising comes along. He fights Kai. He gets kind of right. obliterated. Right. And it looks like he's done. And then all of a sudden, now he's the tournament champion. Right. But I heard on the first fight against Kai, Ogibo sort of ignored the corner man's direction, period. Oh, really? You know? Yeah. He just went. He kind of played right into Kai's hand, which was get hit exactly. really hard, right. really fast. Right, so exactly, I think so. He at least his corner man or coach knew that wasn't the real uh, Ogikubo. Yes. So they probably felt. I mean, only I'm only guessing, but this is almost like they're approaching at their first encounter. The, the last one didn't count. Kind of well, thing. I mean, and speaking of his injuries, I mean, and in other injuries, it sounds mm -hmm. like Takizawa broke his hand in his opening fight with Takizawa. Yes, let's talk about that. Actually, also Takizawa broke his jaw too. I think from uh, Kai's left. Ooh hook and everything so everybody i haven't now that you say that i have an image of where that happened i think i know what punch did that because kai landed an absolutely giant punch on him that i think mm -hmm. might have temporarily dropped him right 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 but um i want to give i mean a little credit to takizawa in that he was hesitant in the beginning but when it became clear he was losing he went right at kai yeah and i have more respect for him now that i know that he had a broken jaw when he was doing that right but kai seems to have a clear hand problem He's mm -hmm. broken his hand yeah, at least three times. Man. He probably threw like five or six right hand on the entire three yeah. rounds, I think. And he broke it, which makes me think it was probably the punch that broke the jaw. But um, mm -hmm. this means he's now broken his hand at least three times that I know of. And on a somewhat funny note, I know someone that works at the doctor's office that fixed his hand. Mm -hmm. And it's the same doctor that fixed Naoki and Ogikubo's hands. Mm-hmm. And uh, the joke is that the, the nurse was joking that the doctor is an Ogikobo fan, so she thinks he might have sabotaged Kai's hand going into the tournament. <laughs> you know but, what? <laughs> Anyone in this business or sports knows that the fist injury, like, oh, yeah. it's a high possibility to get to be injured, first of all, and first right. within three, four months. So, in terms of a full, quote, full, full recovery, you kind of look at about six months, sometimes even up to a year. Yeah. So, for well, Kai, right? I mean, he broke it in the first round of the tournament, right? Right. So for Kai, so, I mean, his hands never had time to heal. He just keeps breaking it over exactly and over again. Right. So I feel bad for him. But this is the point I, I have to make. I think you said this on the other podcast that Kai should have should take Takizawa down and do yep. ground and pound, and not take a chance on swinging, you know, striking because there's a possibility for. Uh, injuries, right? Because you have to fight right. twice in one day. I totally well, not just that. I mean, also, striking was Takizawa's only chance to win that fight. Oh, I know. Exactly. Right. 
and all of the past seven losses Takizawa took, he got taken down and got control. Right. And and it's not like you know like Takizawa. I mean, Akai is so used to uh, the fighter fighter who uses a lot of kicks. Right. And, and again, right here, I don't know why Takizawa didn't use more variety of kicks, frontal kicks, and all kinds of stuff. Anyway, to go back to Kai. So this is what I think. You know, of course, he has a very good hands, right? Strong hand. If you connect, you can drop anybody. But if he really, really wants to fight in a world class level, that's a good weapon, but that's not enough, right? Because all these guys out there have the same kind of weapon. And I well, think in that sense, his takedown defense is super good, right? I mean, yes. So I thought that his whole game plan should be, should have been created around takedown defense. Like I mean, like, Chuck Liddell or Mirko Krokop kind of style? Yeah, exactly. Not not going for a knockout to impress fans and or excite the fans or whatever. You know, like he kept saying, like, I want to carry the MMA on, Japanese MMA on my shoulder and yeah. want to excite the fans and blah, blah. It's great. It's it's awesome thing to say. And it's, it's But sometimes that doesn't work, right? I mean, it's just not the probability, right? It's just not a smart decision, you know? Well, my criticism... I agree with everything you said. And I have more criticism for Kai is that I can't put up these losses to his hand injury because his loss to Ogikubo, he seemed super hesitant. Mm -hmm. And Ogikubo, who's significantly shorter than him, was repeatedly hitting him in the face. Right. Yeah, that's and, actually what happened against Yamaniha fight, too. Right. Yeah. And I think everyone now, since the Kyoji fight, was like, well, I'm going to try to hit Kai with a bunch of low kicks, too. Right. And he was eating a lot of low kicks, and mm -hmm. I didn't see any growth. And when you're a striker fighting a wrestler, I feel like you shouldn't be taking that many hits. That I mean, too. the crowd was gasping every time Ogikubo mm -hmm. landed one of those looping hooks. Mm -hmm. Well, here's what I think. I mean, I think there's two ways to look at that fight. I mean, one way to look at it is like, one, I think Kai never gave up, right? right. Not even once, all the way to three rounds. I think he has the fighting spirits. There's no problem about that department. He's got that mind of a fighter that what it takes to right win any fights. Now, two, he was be he he was pretty good on takedown defense. Even though he got right. pushed to the corner, you know how to, even though he got taken down, he knows how to he knew how to get up and blah blah blah. So in that sense, I think he proved it that he's got he's very right. good at that department. But other way to look at that fight, it was the Ogikuba again was landing a lot of right punches, but in terms of uh, wrestling aspect, he was quite easy going for that single leg. How many yeah. times he picked up that single leg? Like like right. almost every time he went in, he was easy. He easily picked up that single leg. I mean, and I only saw I only saw Kai. I think Kai was trying to counter it with an uppercut, mm -hmm. and I only saw him throw it a couple times. It just exactly. I think he was so nervous about getting taken down that he just his offense shut down completely. Completely. That's because also besides the, if you take right hand out of his game plan, he's not going to be able to do too much with that jab, right? Because he's not right. that. Then what's his other way to to, to finish the fight? So that's when you. you know I don't want to you know I don't want <laughs> you know Asakura fans to accuse me of saying this, but you know he's one sided, right? So you have yeah, to be an all round fighter. Yeah, I yeah. agree. Yeah, and plus <laughs> I, I would be critical too. I mean. I just don't know how good of training he gets at Triforce in the current I, situation I that he's in. I agree with that. Yeah, I have to. I, I really shouldn't say that because I don't know. But yeah. I 
don't think he is getting a training that that he deserves maybe you know like he right. i think he deserves to get a better world class training you know right he's got that talent so yeah but he really needs to that prop to to solve well, the problem because if you you know was shorter than him and he's getting hit right. with a guy who's shorter and he and the guy I, of course was the first rate fighter but still he's he's pretty easy he was easily picking up his right leg or left yeah. leg whatever i mean easy what and, do you and, think uh, about um so okay, this is what Osaka's third New Year's Eve loss in a row, right? Oh, I know. I feel bad. Yeah. And the Kurt, I mean, I just think that he should no longer agree to fight on events that his brother is on. I because I, they I, haven't I, won on the same card since like a long time ago. However, I'm telling these two guys feel that they need to carry the Japanese MMA on their shoulder. Like I said, this is a Super Bowl of MMA, so there's just no choice for them to not fight unless they're injured. Well. <laughs> We'll talk about it later at the Mikudu fight, but yeah, we can. I think Rising had no choice but to put Mikudu on the card. Yeah, of course, it was much popular. Let's talk about Mikudu fight because I want yeah. to discuss this one because I have a feeling they might even do a featherweight Grand Prix now. Who knows, right? But yes. what do you thought about the Mikudu against uh, Saito? Um, outside of the technical aspects of the fight and the fight itself. Mm -hmm. The feeling I got in the arena is Mikudu is now clearly the biggest star in Rising. Oh, yeah, of course. Right, yeah. The crowd like... went nuts for Mikudu. Uh -huh. And when Mikudu was fighting, there was even like a Mikudu chant that was going on. Oh, and Jap okay. from other fights, like it was like you could hear a pen drop. It was the typical Japanese, very quiet audience. Mm -hmm. And when Mikudu fought, they just went nuts. They love him. And he's, I mean, when Kai fought, he was getting cheers, but Ogikubo was getting just as loud of cheers. Mm -hmm. But Mikuru is just a different level than anyone else that fought on the card. So he's a real true superstar right now. Oh, I mean, he's so famous now that the YouTuber, the people he fought on the Abima series were there mm -hmm. at the fights. Mm -hmm. And people were taking pictures of them. <laughs> They're at giant crap lines of people wanting to take pictures of the people that Mikuru beat up on TV. Right, so Mikuru makes or everybody gets involved with him as a star too. Yes, exactly. Well, he's good. so he's famous good. now that if you people want to take pictures with like the people that film his YouTube channel, right? So it's almost like I don't know if it's a good analogy, but it's almost like a Ric Flair then, because every pro wrestler wants to be in the same show as Ric Flair, right? Right. Wants to get mm -hmm. that same attention, or you know, even fight Ric Flair so they get that spotlight mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Oh yeah. So I mean, and, yeah. And it hey. seems also if you fight with Mikuru, mm -hmm. he tends to become. Kai and him seem to become friendly with people they fight sometimes. Mm -hmm. And those people come on their YouTube channels. Like, I mean, the classic example is Shoji. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of benefits to fighting them, even if you lose. But the, the fight itself, I thought the opening round was very close. Mm -hmm. I thought Mikuru was getting hit by um, lead left hooks by Saito when he came in. Yep. And I thought they were both kind of cautious of each other up until... Mikuru blasted him in the second round. And at first, everyone thought that the cut was reopened from the Ushiki fight. But then right, it became no, clear that Saito's right. nose must have just been completely shattered. Must he, got, a lot. he was knocked down. I mean, almost knocked down with the left hook, was it? No? Or like it's... I think he got hurt. It was like a combination that put him down. Mm -hmm. And it busted his nose up pretty bad. So I think he probably had a hard time breathing afterwards. And then from that point on, it became clear that Mikuru was winning the fight. Which, 
I think after the fight, Sakaki Barra even said that he thought that maybe Saito took the fight too soon after the Ushiku fight. Of course, but, uh, yeah. That's probably one of the reasons, yeah. But this is probably, this is also the outcome that Rising must have wanted because Mikuru is such a giant star. Now he's beat Saito, and now you can do the tournament and put Mikuru in it coming off of a couple of wins. Well, I, I'm not taking anything away from Saito, but I always thought the Saito is a little bit small for featherweight. And uh, in terms of his yeah, and takedown defense and the, the grappling thing, I mean, he's good, but it's not the best of the best. You know, I, can, I could see Claybell, Koike beating him, right? And uh, I can like he got dominated by well, the Majima, like one of those, you know? Is he like one of those classic um, all-rounders that has the problem that he's not super good at anything? And so exactly. he doesn't have an area you know, where he yeah, sticks yeah. out. All around, right. He doesn't have nothing that's – he's just really good all around. Right, right but he's not and, an expert at anything, which is when he fights a guy no. that is an expert in something, he has a hard time. Exactly, right. And in terms of striking, it's obviously Mikuri is better, right? So if you have a trouble – Right, but I will say – I was impressed with Saito's striking in his last fight mm. with Ushiku up until the end. And right. he was hitting. Mikuru was getting hit with these lead hooks. And I think there was actually a moment in the fight where they both kind of stunned each other. Like one stunned one and the other stunned him quickly. Right, after. right. I remember and that, I think, right? They both kind of smiled. And I think they were both right. kind of hesitant. I think they were both kind of scared of each other for large portions of the fight. <laughs> well, they're very, very cautious. You know? Yes, exactly. I mean, uh, I can't so even imagine I, the pressure that Mikuru feels fighting on the biggest night of the year on live. Oh, TV. yeah, of course. And and mm -hmm. if he loses this one, people will say, "Ah, oh, he lost two in a row." You know, yeah. Now nah, he doesn't deserve it. Blah blah blah. But now nah, he won, so now nah, he even have a right to to ask for a title fight against Clever Koike, right? Exactly. Or something like that. And if he wins and he became a rising champion, then I think you know him having a you know. What is it? Two, two million YouTube followers and being very famous publicly, everything became a pretty good uh, negotiation, like tactics, yeah. weapon for him. So he might even make it to UFC. Who knows, right? Yeah, I mm. mean, I wouldn't want to see that. I would continue. I would like to see him reign and rising because I think, I think like his brother, they have holes to their games. Mm -hmm. That would just get exploited, I think, by extremely top-level wrestlers or something like that. Yeah, I, I have to say I agree with you. You know, if I said that in Japanese, I'd probably get slammed by social media. <laughs> but yeah, I have to agree with you on that. And and also, you know, this is I have to say this. I won't. I can't reveal so much, but I pretty much know can guess what kind of money Miku is making mm -hmm. in the Japanese market. Not only with the YouTube, you know, sponsorship to purse to the Abema thing and stuff like that. It would be stupid for him to go to UFC. That's why I agree. I mean, <laughs> it really is. Yeah. I it's mean, he, I don't know how wisely he spends his money, uh -huh. but just looking at how he spends his money, mm -hmm. he must be making a fortune. Right. Exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. And for, uh, the, for the people that work on his YouTube channel to be living in ten thousand dollar a month apartments, means he, he must he, be making an absolute gold mine. <laughs> Right, and you have to really think of it this way. Like, if this is the States, right, if you do pay-per-view shows, 
broadcaster takes 50 and promoter takes 50, right? So fighters will take some percentage of that 50 most of the time, right? Mm -hmm. And Mikuru's the reality show, whatever that with Abema, it's about the Mikuru, so he's that 50, right? Yeah, I mean, let's see how much that they probably sold for like 3,000 yen, whatever. Mm-hmm. And let's just do the simple math. Like, let's guess how much he was sold. You know what I mean? Like, if he makes 50% of that, I mean, yes. I'm, I'm telling you right now that it's, it would be stupid for me to go to UFC. In every business, yeah. there's a reward. I mean, I'm less, you know, they offer fatal kind of money, you know? <laughs> well, he should just, I mean, he's such a good, uh, a figure in the Japanese market to go mm-hmm. fight somewhere else would just undercut all of his marketing appeal almost. Right. That's why, in a way, he's very clever that sometimes he mentions UFC, but it's just his marketing tactic. You know? Yeah. I mean, I mean, if I was him, I would almost want to become the face of the landmark shows. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And try right. to negotiate to get a percentage of the pay per view buys <laughs> if he hasn't already done that. He, I'm, I'm, I hope he's him, him and his manager or whatever that's smart enough that he already did that, you know, because yeah. he's actually, here's what I think, you know, there's two guys I can think of at the guy who never really, really went to the UFC route, which is Shin Aoki, right? Right. He always never really. Very smart for doing it, by the way. His, he's extended his career so long very by not going to the right. UFC. Exactly, and doing very well, one. But at the same time, he's very active on social network, you know, mm-hmm. or the note or voice here, or whatever, pressing, you know, like mm-hmm. he's very, very good. And he's like, you know, like doing everything he can as a fighter. But the Nikuru is different. He's actually a talent, you know what I mean? Like a right. businessman. So his whole approach is at another level. Which is right. making him millions of dollars, which I am assuming. So, I remember because the, the some people were trying to interview them from a foreign media outlet, mm-hmm. and they're such business people like Mikiko and Kai. They, if you're not a big media outlet, they won't do an interview for free. Oh, they're like, why? Why, why would I do that? I'm going to bring some, well, clicks to your website. You get all the benefit from this. You got to pay me. <laughs> so, I think they're very business savvy. I mean, that makes every sense, and I'm very happy for him that he established that kind of you know value to himself. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah, I totally. And especially he is on that world, meaning YouTube's and social networks. You know, click. He is the big clickbait, right? So called. I mean, it, all credit to him. He is the reason fighters make YouTube channels in Japan, because he was the first, and he was so successful at it. People are trying to copy him. Right, people try to all copy him, but none of them are really making a big money. No. Well, it's <laughs> no. kind of interesting. If you watch his YouTube versus their YouTube, his YouTube is very different than theirs. Like, he's done a very good job of branding himself on his YouTube channels. Yeah, it's like a variety yeah. show. Right. I, I don't and, know if you're with that. There's a show called London Hearts, you know, oh, which is, it was yeah. very big, uh, like a like same kind of variety show back in like nineties mm-hmm. and early twenties. It reminds me of that show. So he's doing this almost very similar thing as, you know? Yeah. But he's smart, right. It's different. He also uses it to like brand himself as like this super high fight IQ kind of badass, the rough past. Exactly. Coming off from the street. So, you know, he's a hero of working class too, right? Exactly. Yeah. And also remember in Japan or anywhere in the world, there's always a mafia, Yakuza, whatever. Everybody's attracted to that kind of world too, you know? Right. He have experienced the both sides. 
he's like in a way like uh, Michael Corleone being successful <laughs> in the Vegas hotels, you know? Yeah, <laughs> that exactly. kind of stuff. Like, almost, almost something like that. So I'm telling you, I mean, he's a new figure. It's making a big difference in Japanese MMA. And also, because of him, now I think in a way that another fighter is outside of Japan once pandemic problem is all over, they might be making good money fighting Mikuru too. You know what I mean? Like getting involved in that well, you know, hype train, you know? 100%. He's, gonna be, he's gotta be getting attention. And also like going into this year, there's kind of like, who's the biggest fighter in rising? Is it Tenshin? Is it Kai? Is it Mikuru? And now to me, in my opinion, it's clearly Mikuru. Right now, like, clearly. Right. Like, he got... Yeah, Horiguchi. Horiguchi is also keeping that. Exactly. Horiguchi is... competitive aspect. Hor- like, Horiguchi is popular for the fact that he went to the United States and won and right. did well. Like, he's seen as, like, the best fighter. I think they kind of have... Yeah. They have overlapping he's fan bid groups. I think Mikuru has a different fan ever. group. Right. In history right. of Japanese internet. Well, maybe except Sakuraba, but that's a different era, so let's not talk about that, you know? Exactly. But I'm also just thinking, like, Mikuru has... People were mentioning on Twitter, and I was kind of thinking about it, I never thought about it before. Tenshin's career has kind of been wasted in rising a little bit. Mm-hmm. A little bit, it's, yeah. Especially with, like, fights like this Gomi fight, and then his last, like, what, the Tokoro boxing yeah, match. Three guys, exhibition, you know? But my response to those types of comments would be that while he may not be a fighting top competition, Tenshin's name value has skyrocketed since he's been on Rising. Exactly. Actually, especially with the Mayweather do. fight. So his branding to help out his career professionally being on Rising was the biggest thing he ever did. Oh, I mean, I agree because like when the Rising, when the very first fight, they gave him an MMA fight offer. They didn't really yes. take him that seriously. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say that seriously, but they, you know, they were still testing him back then, right? In my opinion, totally there's no way this there's no way this Takeru fight would happen if he had never gone to Rising. Oh, exactly, and it's only been a five years since then. He's one of the the biggest names in Japanese household, you know. Right, right. So I mean, you have to recognize Sakagiba as one of the you know best promoters in the right. business or creating stars. You know, there's no doubt. I, about it. I will say one of the nice things about the event too, related to Tenshin, was. They had a couple surprises lined up, and when Takeru came out to the ring, mm-hmm. the the crowd was like was went nuts. They're like in disbelief. Right. It was it was like the idea that Netenshin and Takeru fighting was a dream, and then when Takeru came out to the ring, it became real, mm. and everyone like didn't believe they would ever see Tenshin, you know, Takeru in a rising ring, and people went absolutely nuts about it. I mean, again, that's a that's a, such a great move by Sakakibara to confirm that fight on Christmas Eve, right? So it's like, oh right, put more like momentum into this event. It's on national TV. Talk about free advertising. You're already on TV. You already got everyone watching, and now you're announcing the biggest kickboxing match since Masato was around, and people are eating it up. They're going to go absolutely nuts for it. Oh, and, and, and I'm telling you right now, it's going to be a neutral promotion or whatever that is. I don't care where they're going to be doing this or what promotion's name, whatever. This, this is going to be set up pretty quick. My, It would be a waste if it was anything but the Tokyo Dome. And I think they could... Well, I think they're looking out. at the National Stadium, too, in a place they Ooh. did Dynamite, you know, the yeah. Gale against Bob Sapp, you know, Crowpot Cop against Sakuraba, you know? Mm-hmm. I is mean... the Bob Sapp, Akebono? 
Uh, Sapa Kibono was, I think, no. I think National Stadium was like Sapa Nogueira. Okay, okay. Because yeah. I wanted to, I thought that'd be a good segue because I read an article. I was reading, I, was, I spent all today and yesterday trying to find the ratings mm. and they were just released yesterday. But while I was I searching for that, yeah. I actually came across a Yahoo Japan article. I think it was, I think it was a yacht, it was on Yahoo Japan, but I think it was from the magazine Number. Mm-hmm. And a guy was talking about the history of TV ratings. And apparently, the highest rated MMA fight ever was Akebono versus Bob yeah. Sapp. Yeah, that, actually, that beat the Red and White singing contest. And I was completely blown away. That fight yeah. did over 30%. Right. It was right. like so, an absolute giant number. Like, it's it a huge only- number. It's the only time that that beat the singing festival by NHK. Right. So yeah, now yeah. it all makes sense. When I had to sit through and suffer through Bob Sapp, Akebono 2, I now know why that fight was made. Right. Because I the mean, first fight was insanely it's watched. It's the Money in the Bank card. Yeah, for right. the national television. So that's another one. Money in the Bank is this one. Tenshin versus Takeru. But oh that 30% God, is such an... Because, I mean, we can talk about it now. I think rising average, something around 7% for this event. Mm-hmm. Which, which was same as on, last year, pretty much. Same as yeah. last year. And I know going into the event, Sakakibara said his goal was to get like over 10%. But... And I think they were saying, well... This year, the popular show, Warate Ikenai, which is like the don't laugh comedy yeah, show right. that people probably see on YouTube, isn't going to be aired. That show, what right. didn't happen this year. So there's no big competitor. Right? So they were thinking, are gone. Yeah. all there is is Kohaku, the singing competition. And I think another boxing match was made last minute. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. But I think they were thinking they could take advantage of it. And that just wasn't the case. I mean, I don't think people that weren't, I don't think people were watching Warate Ikenai instead of Rising. Mm. It's what I think Sakakamaru was hoping. I think the people that were watching Rising were already watching Rising. Right, right, right. And plus the one who was watching Warate Ikenai will come to the Rising, right? Yeah, I think they just went to go watch the singing competition instead. I think so, right. <laughs> so, it's well, like a different taste anyway. So it's to begin with, they're just not into the fights, period. You know? Now, you have more inside information. What type of numbers does Fuji TV expect from Ryzen? I actually don't know that, but they were hoping more than 10. But I think... I've always thought on New Year's Eve shows, they always wanted something over 10. Right. They always want to, but I think 6 or 7 is actually acceptable, well acceptable okay. numbers. So I think, I, I think I'm assuming that Fuji Television is committed to do Rising one more year, at least, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, but I mean... I would. I can't see why not. Plus, I mean, Kohaku is such a juggernaut at this point. It is. Right. Even though the ratings have gone down slightly, the ratings are still no. close to forty percent every year. Right. And also, you have to understand the Japanese is heavily like elderly. Like the, the population is heavy. Like half of the population is over like sixty years old. Right. Well, and I'm like, let's happy go. that you. Yeah. I'm happy that you mentioned that because the article I read actually mentioned that the TV ratings also suggest that more people are going out on New Year's Eve. Hmm. Whereas historically, people would go to like their parents' house and watch all these TV shows and eat a bunch of food and drink. Mm-hmm. It seems like younger people might not be watching TV on New Year's no, Eve as much. not at all. Because they could go to the bar, restaurant, and watch it on their tablet or cell phone. Yes. So yeah. now it seems like even with a population that's already older leaning, 
now you're removing the younger population that does exist. Exactly. The only people are watching are the older people. Right. And it majority, I wouldn't say majority, but the big chunk of older people just prefer to not watch any violence. Yeah. Why do you want to watch somebody getting bloody on New Year's Eve is how they feel, you know? Well, also, I mean, you can talk about MMA being a tradition on TV, but Kohawk has been on TV since the 1960s. Right. It's a tradition, you know? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. So... But anyway, so let's talk about another fight on Rising 33, which to me was the, one of the biggest ones, surprise, was Izawa. Biggest, in my opinion, this is the biggest, the biggest takeaway of the event. Oh, big. Was time. the biggest news of the event. I mean, after this fight, I was walking around and you could hear mm-hmm. people talking about it. They oh. were so stunned because while not everyone is a fan of women's MMA, They'd all become used to the fact that Hamasaki was this dominant champion. Oh, yeah. She was just crushed everybody. Everybody, yeah. And Izawa went out there and absolutely dominated Hamasaki in a way that's never happened before. Hamasaki mm-hmm. has never been dominated, except maybe I mean, the Claudia Gadelia fight. Maybe she was roughed up. But even then, it wasn't a domination, in my opinion. That was opinion. even a 15-pound fight. But just for the record, also against her, Souza, she got knocked out. But I'm telling right, you, but- publicly, that she had a back injury. She threw her back yeah. a couple of days before the fight. We thought about scratching that fight, but she didn't want it to. So she basically walked in there without really being able to do anything. Well, also, so anyway, I wouldn't consider that a yeah. domination because that was just that was just she just got knocked out. Right, yeah. Whereas this was the only time I've ever seen someone – be like, oh, Ayaka Hamasaki is one of the best grapplers in MMA. I'm going to show that she's not <laughs> to my level of grappling. Because oh, Hamas- exactly, right. Izawa I mean, completely destroyed her in every aspect of grappling. Every aspect. Hamasaki has zero answer for Izawa on the ground. And I think Hamasaki might have to blame her teammate, Saori Oshima, but a clear part of Izawa's game plan was that when Hamasaki's on top of people, she tends to posture up and throw punches down. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to up kick her in the face repeatedly every time she does that. Mm-hmm. And I think in the post fight comments, Hamasaki even said those kicks really messed her up and they stunned her a lot. And that might have been why she was so kind of out of it in the second round. And Hamasaki has a history of getting caught in triangles. Yeah. She's never been submitted by them, but she gets caught in them. I and guess he's always used it around, to get on top of her. Right? I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. No, no here's what it is. I mean, I think Hamasaki was confident enough to be able to grapple with her. That's why she was, she did allow, right? He's allowed to come in close. Almost didn't really think about doing the striking game, you know, but I think. Uh, the fact, you remember how like Izawa got on her back pretty quickly and how yeah. Masaki had a real trouble getting the arm locks in? Mm-hmm. That's when I knew, oh, she's in trouble. You know? <laughs> you know? I thought, first off, let's talk about Izawa is a graduate student at a very mm-hmm. prestigious Japanese university. She's a very yeah. smart person. Mm-hmm. And when I interviewed her, one of the things I asked, like, what's your response? People are talking about, this is before the fight, but how quickly you've risen to the top of the MMA world. And she said, it's more of that. She's done a really good job in her opinion of use it, of coming up with game plans and using what she's good at while also working and make her weaknesses stronger. And in this fight, 
it was clear. I mean, before the fight, my prediction was Hamasaki has a clear striking advantage. Exactly. Right. And Hamasaki's physically a stronger fighter. Just look at their body types. Hamasaki's stronger. So Hamasaki is going to try, if they strike, Hamasaki can win. And Izawa was just like, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get this fight to the ground. I'm going to pull guard. I'm going to go for uh, takedowns. I'm going to jump on a guillotine choke. And I don't care if I get it or not. As long as we're grappling on the ground, I feel that I have the advantage. And she proved she was right. She was right. She was right. She took that striking game out of the window the way she mm-hmm. fought. I mean, if she struck, that's a different game, you know? Almost yeah. like he's clearly still better striker. And I think even physically, maybe someone's like he's stronger, but Izawa has a longer leg and arm. Mm-hmm. So even though she doesn't necessarily have the big muscle, you know, it, it could get very difficult. It yeah. has that leverage on the ground game. So, and on top of this, she's a wrestler slash judoka. I mean, come yes. on. Right? I mean, <laughs> don't forget the sumo. She also did sumo. Yeah, right. So. <laughs> You cannot but, be I mean, down by her. That's the point, right? I mean, before this fight, I was impressed by Izawa. Two things that impressed me about Izawa was I watched her at a deep jewels event, at a deep event, or mm-hmm. uh, I think it was a deep event. Mm-hmm. She had a grappling match with Seik, uh, Megumi Sugimoto, mm-hmm. who is one of Ayaka Hamasaki's teammates, right. who was who was a somewhat high level collegiate wrestler. She wasn't yeah. like Olympic yeah. level or anything, but yeah, she was no. a she got smoked, right? I know. Yeah, um, and Izawa absolutely smoked her. But what impressed me was before the fight, you could hear Izawa warming up for the grappling match mm-hmm. for like forty minutes. She was just backstage, just constantly working. And you looked at her, and she just didn't stop moving. And she was working out in the hallway and just doing all the stuff. And you're just like, "Oh, this girl's got stamina that doesn't stop. This girl is a cardio machine." And then you watched her grapple, and she's so quick on every submission. You're just like, oh, okay. And then you see another grappling tournament, and she beat a girl with a heel hook, an arm bar, and a choke. And you're like, okay, Ayaka Hamasaki beats people with arm bars. Mm-hmm. Uh, Seike Izawa just beat three different people in under a minute with three different submissions. <laughs> so it's like, oh, this girl knows how to grapple. Boy. And the other thing that impressed me the most, this is what impressed me the most, was that she fought Miki Matono. In Twice. her second, yeah. I think it was her second professional fight, Indeed. and beat her. Now, it was a competitive fight, mm-hmm. and she beat her. But then she fought her again, not that long ago, like several months later, right. and absolutely destroyed yeah. her. Yeah, destroyed her, yeah. I know. And you're just like, the level, the giant gaps in improvement that she's making between each fight is incredibly impressive. And if I was Aika Hamasaki... I'd be concerned about the rematch if she keeps improving at the same rate. Well, they would have to do the rematch. I know that. Well, Ayaka uh, Hamasaki even said in her post-fight interview that um, she there she's like asked about her future. She says, "Well, I have a duty to fight Izawa again," and I've already been starting to hear rumors that the fight's already booked for sometime next year. And you got to think that if they fight again, Hamasaki's going to try to make it a striking battle. Well, she has to, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. But let's see, you know, and uh, well, here's what it is. I mean, I know you just explained everything about Izawa, and I agree with you. She's like one of the top talents came out of uh, Japanese women's MMA. And But the fact that, you know, straw weight in the Japanese women's MMA is almost like zero. Well, that's nothing going on, right? So I was still, wasn't too sure how good she is. 
Now will she beat Hamasaki? I'm firmly confirmed that, con I, I, you know, convinced, I'm, I'm not convinced that uh, she should start building up a new 115. I mean, oh, she really, I mean, I don't know why, forget this atom weight, whatever that is. No, mm -hmm. she should build up to 150. She has the Deep Joe's title at 115. And if she beats Hamasaki 110, she should grab a microphone and say, forget this 110. That's not the weight class I want. Let's yeah. do 115. And ask Rising to book top 115 fighters. Well, I know you kind of, you said it would never happen because of the way things work. But I mean, right, yeah. she said in interviews that um, she wants to be a UFC champion. She's very clear. Sure. She wants to become a world champion. And my thought process is, I mean, she's already done everything she can in Rising in one fight. This is what happens when Rising books somebody in an immediate title, in an immediate fight with the title with the title holder. When you dominate them, she has nowhere farther up to go. She's proven she's the best in Japan in one fight. Right. But if she wins it, there's a championship clause. And, of course, not just yeah. because of the contract. The way the Japanese MMA works, they – gave her an opportunity so right. she has to kind of pay back a couple more times so my guess Plus is with the that, pandemic it makes right. sense to just stay active right. in japan right but if she beats hamasaki again in a title fight and gets the belt maybe she would have to defend title one more time or twice then she could go i, I you know and back to your earlier point about the strawweight division i mean i just don't mm -hmm. think there's any chance because the other Miki Matono is a very good fighter that she beat. Mm -hmm. And she's Ayaka Hamasaki. She's in Ayaka Hamasaki's corner. She's one of Ayaka Hamasaki's main sparring partners and is often described as being like a little model of Ayaka Hamasaki. They have very similar fight styles. Uh -huh. And she was strawweight. And Sayaki said, and after her last fight, you can't fight at strawweight. You should really drop down. There's no one in strawweight in Japan. Right, exactly. And, and she her next fight? Right. Her next fight's been booked for March, and it's at 49 kilo. Right, I know. So, yeah. I mean, Their yeah. strawweight division just isn't going to happen, I feel like. Oh, I know. I know that. And I actually I, I actually just communicated with Saiki a few hours ago. I I know that she had no trouble making 115, so they feel that it only makes sense for her to cut a little bit of weight because she would have an advantage there. I get that, you know. But there's no 110 in anywhere in the world. You know, and even at 110, like you said, the Rising don't have a trouble booking anybody to go fight against her, especially at 110. I mean, 105 girl won't fight her at 110, 115. Why would I go down to 110, right, to fight her? Sooner well, or later, they're going to face trouble trying to book in somebody to fight her. Well, you know? to your point, to your point, if you're a big enough fighter, you can do whatever you want. I mean, Rena's fought at 50 kilo for her last couple fights. Sure, right. And no one seems to care about that at all. Exactly, right. In Japan, nobody cares in a way, right, about the weight once you became yeah. famous enough. So that's why right. I think you should be building up. <laughs> you know? Yeah, so I know Izawa's brother is a personal trainer. And when I spoke to her, she said she's working on bulking up. Okay, the only good. reason she fought good at 49 kilo is because she walks around at like 53 kilo. And I'm telling you right now, I'm going to tell this, I guess her coach or people in Japan might get pissed, but she should train in States. She does not have a good sparring partner, women partner in Japan at that weight class at all. Not yeah, because I think she she's technically free, mm -hmm. but she realistically trains at K-Clan, and she trains with King Reina, Kate Lotus, and... I think she also trains with Kana Watanabe and Hikaru Aono. And that's just not, I mean, 
Kana Watanabe is a very good fighter, but she's just too big for a training mm -hmm. partner, I think. Yeah, exactly, right. And um, Hikaru Aono is a very good wrestler, but she's not world-class at this right. point. And so the point is this, that, a lot. Yeah. exactly. This is what I think. I mean, for those who doesn't realize this, is this, like, even though, let's say, you're surrounded by 115 pounds fighters, it's also much better to have a different body types and different, like, a fight style of fighters. You know what I mean? Like, you do yeah. not have that kind of variety in Japan, even for a Japanese male fighters. Like, for example... Like to go back to Naoki in a way, because you mentioned what's his plan for the future. Like one of the problems we knew the Naoki have in Japan is a lack of grappling training and a lack mm -hmm. of a, a variety of sparring partners at the same or similar weight class. Now, for example, he didn't have anybody to spar with with the same body type as Ogikubo, which is mm -hmm. short, stocky. You know what I mean? Right. She was sparring with Seki, which is a little bit lanky, long. Now, when Seki gets on the top of him, he had an easy time squeezing his legs between the body. You know, he was able to train that pretty easily, but no, not against Ogikubo. Didn't have that kind of training partner to do that. So all these little things count, right? So in that sense, she's not going to have a good training partner in Japan. Mm -hmm. it's, just a, it's just a fact. And if she yeah. really thinks about the world-class like competition, if she wants to be a UFC fighter, she should go like now to join well, something. To build on your point, I went to AACC had their 20th anniversary recently. Mm -hmm. And I got the chance to kind of go to their party and talk to some of the people. And I was talking to Abe because AACC is a very famous women's team. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what do you think? Why do you think your team's so strong? And he said, he one of his philosophies was that he wrestled in college. Right. He was a wrestler. He always, he always thought that the women wrestlers did better when they trained with other women mm -hmm. because he thought when they trained with men, sometimes the men would either take it easy or there was like this awkwardness or the body types were different. Exactly. And benefited. Right. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. Right. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. so if you don't have access to a bunch of different female sparring partners, I think you have to go find them. Exactly. Right. And, and it's hard in Japan. It's difficult. Because Mizuki has kind of that, when she's in New York, she has that situation where all those girls from different gyms train together, right? Right. Caitlin, you know, Erin, uh, you know, uh, everybody, you know? Yeah, and I mean, Claudia was also involved. So Claudia, I mean, right. Jessica, I, you know, like, oh, like it's saying, like, that's what, that's what the Izawa needs. And a lot of people might think, oh, she's only, what, 23, 4, whatever. She's already 24. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. That's how uh, yes. you have to realize that. So I'm telling well, you right now that she has should come to the States to train. What like Ren Hiramoto, he's gonna move permanently to the States this year. And just to go back to Naoki, I'm bringing him back uh at the end of January to join the last half of Aljamain Sterling's the fight camp. Because he has a title fight coming up, which is not announced yet, right? Obviously, so I can't talk about that. But uh, he's doing the fight camp. Mm -hmm. And then you know, so in Horiguchi's in ATT, there are more than few teams that is, I believe, it's suitable for Izawa in states. So she's she really sure. looking into that. I really think. Okay, so. We got a comment from Juan saying, "What what gym would you like to see? What gym do you think she should go to?" I've already. I'm not going yeah. to mention this on public space because I'm going to suggest that to Saiki later tonight. Right, <laughs> so right. we'll see. So, you know, we'll have to wait and see. But right. um, I will say, I think. 
to your comment about ATT or Rufus Sport, uh, Juan, I think a lot of people in Japan are obsessed with ATT because of Motoguchi's success. Mm -hmm. But I don't think ATT is the best environment for everybody. Oh, totally right. And um, so I think people in Japan, whenever they think about training abroad, they're like, oh, you got to go to ATT with Mike Brown. But I think there's a lot of good options for her. And it just depends right. on where she fits and where she can get the good sparring partners. Right, and, right, exactly. And the coach that could, could like enhance the skill that she already have and also it's the skills she needs. You know what right. I mean? So what does she need? She needs to work on her striking? Well, that too, well, of course, the way she fights, she's utilized. She's like, she could be like a guy like uh, Damian Meyer or Hani Yahia, who basically only uses see, striking to get to the ground. You know what I mean? See, I thought that's what was so smart about her strategy was... Exactly, right. That's I know that she... Yahia, of, in know? her last fight with Siwoo Park, she was like, I wanted to showcase some of my striking. Right. And I've always respected fighters that are like, no, I'm going to use what got me to the party. I'm a grappler. That's where my clear advantage is. That's mm -hmm. what I'm going to do. Well, but against... but against that last fight, I think she was confident enough to be able to strike against her, right? But not against yeah. Hamasaki. So why take chance? So that shows you that she has a good fight IQ. Mm -hmm. She doesn't get too hot and forgets about the game plan or rush. You know what I mean? She was pretty good at calm looking, you know. You know? Also, also, I mean, talk about not being phased at all by the big stage. Oh, I know. I was also impressed by that. But right. I could gush about her all day. <laughs> we could move on to another fight, maybe. Yeah. Well, anyway, so, I mean, we're, we're talking a lot already. It's already past hour and 17. So maybe we can talk about the other fight at the other time because it's already we covered pretty much all the good ones, right? Well, just close with this. Any other big fight that stood out to you? Oh, Jesus. Besides that, hold on. You know, I'm telling you, honestly, after Naoki lost, I spend most of the time texting and emailing and trying to figure out what he needs to do next. So most of the fights, yeah. Um, I guess you have to say Satoshi against Yachi because it proved yeah. once again the Yachi, I mean, the Satoshi is just really good like, at yeah. the world-class level. And I was uh, genuinely surprised that Shurek Sakine won. That made, uh, I don't want, that, that fight was, this it reminded me of the UFC's fight in Colorado. I was like, this is the weirdest fight I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The very first fight, UFC fight. And also, I was quite disappointed with Mr. Suzuki, the Kaibutsukun against Kyohei Hagirara. I thought he could do better. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah, and um, I mean, you've mentioned some good ones off the top of my head. I know he lost, but I was incredibly impressed with Benoa. Oh, yeah, Benoa was good. Yeah, right. And um, against the kid, you know? He hurt Takeda, who's a champion. Right. Not in rising, of course, but I mean he's a promotional champion. And Benoa mm -hmm. looked pretty good at him, good against him for only his third fight, essentially just being a kickboxer. Mm -hmm. So I was impressed by that. And I'd also say that I was also noted that Satoshi changed his tune and is now saying he wants to fight in Bellator. Right. And he so, wants to be like Horiguchi, right? Like it's he interesting. That makes sense. And I guess. My closing comment would be, I guess you were right all along, all, I mean, sorry, right all along that uh, Koike changed his management and now he's headlining a card. Right, so good. Management problems. And but I think the same manager still stays with Satoshi, right? I think that's what it is. So we'll Maybe, see. Maybe, but there's I'm something going on because management's changed and now he's headlining. There's a Koike, right? Satoshi. And there's a Yamaniha, right? 
There's yes. another man from Bonsai coming from, probably making the Ryzen debut in Shizuoka. It's under our management. Oh, so, perfect. So we'll see, you know. I hope that is going to happen, you know. All right, but before that, let's touch real quickly on this one. I think it's a big news for the Japanese event. Oh, yes, yes. Kudo, no longer supported by one championship. Remember, one championship has been their big supporter for the last three years. Now, I, mean, from I couldn't tell by looking at the cage with the one logo that was bigger than the Shuto logo. Exactly. Now, remember they used to have a supported by one on every posters, everything else. Mm-hmm. Now, all of a sudden, January, it's no longer supported one by one. So At all? At all. Fascinating. So does yeah. that mean that one has given up on the Japanese market? I don't think so. I think or, they're one, taking, or they want to have their own shows. I think one is still... Very close with Abema. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, as you can see, they're booking a lot of Japanese fighters in the first couple of shows. You know, we have a, yeah. another, our clients, Okami, fighting in January. And I have yeah. actually another Japanese client fighting in February. So they're yeah. really. Ayaka you know, Miura has a title match. Exactly. So, no, I don't think one gave up on the Japanese market at all. I think Shuto maybe decided that maybe they sh- cannot keep up with the, what one is. You know, trying to do because obviously they haven't been able to send shooter champions to one at all, almost right? Mm-hmm. Only a handful of it, you know. So, is your thought that Shuto is probably the one that decided to not continue the relationship? I think so, yeah. Well, I mean, when you looked at the Abima numbers, I mean, to me, it always looked like Shuto is dominating one championship on views and on Abima on views, and right. And it just seemed like one was Shuto was just making free money from one for having them sponsor their events. So, but. Right, but I think the problem is like partly because of pandemic and because also partly because of rise in. I think uh, Shuto, you know, of course cannot force fighters to go to one, right? They got to give fighter a choice. So, you know, well, I think that was a difficult part of the business. You know, you also can't avoid the fact that one championship has a bad reputation. I've um. I mean, say what you will, if it's warranted or not, but I've spoken to coaches and they're just like, well, I got a guy in one. And then it's kind of like, I got a guy in one. So we've been having some problems. <laughs> like essentially yeah, saying, can't say, yeah, yeah so. exactly. I mean, only only a couple of them get fights pretty regularly. But even the guy like Aoki complains publicly, right? That he can get yeah. fights and this and that. So if Aoki, I mean, if Aoki having a hard time, yeah. I'm guessing the others will, you know? And also, also, my question to you, since you might know, is this a move by Shuto because Shuto's now thinking we're revamping VTJ and we'd rather have our champions in one, in a Shuto, go and fight on the VTJ stage than the one stage? You know what? I think Shuto had a lot of support from Abema TV. So mm-hmm. I, I personally don't think VTJ is such a big enough stage not yet for them to be like that especially without Abema's help so yeah I think I think Sakamoto doesn't want to take too much risk Mm -hmm. and maybe go back to old shoot away like uh, more emphasizing on lots of amateur shows maybe six shows per year to do title fights and blah 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 okay because I'll tell you what I was I was I was compiling the results for the year, and Shuto flies out of the radar. <laughs> they still put on a ton of fights. 
at all of their regional shows. They do, right. And you have to understand, Shuto's amateur shows happens all over the Japan. That's actually- has produced a ton of talent. Tons of talent. It's a foundation of Japanese MMA. And most of the guys- Ayaka Hamasaki's first fight was for Shuto. Sure. And uh, most of the people who is involved in those Shuto amateur shows, they're pretty much doing it for free. It's like a most volunteer workout of passion. So, you know, in, in for Mr. Sakamoto to be able to organize that kind of large group of people, you know, it's it's not that easy. The guy's doing it for the volunteer out of passion, you know what I mean? And they, everybody has their own idea. So, but hopefully, I don't know what's what's going to happen with the Shuto now because let's hope they'll find another sponsor because in Japanese MMA, I'm telling you right now, because of a landmark and trigger, they're pretty much taking the places of like where that good pancreas and deep was. Right, well, so as I just said, I was putting together the results of the year, and I mean, it looks like to me, Deep just dominated the regional market scene. Oh yeah, they did, right? And Shuto and Pancrase were kind of falling behind a little bit. Now, in Pancrase's defense, Pancrase doesn't didn't have as many events because they decided to just not hold events and wait for the pandemic to. Exactly, and they paid the fighters bit. too, so which is very, very good for the Japanese. So that skews their results, but Shuto, I mean, was still trying to do stuff, and it just wasn't the same level. No, so I'm interested to see what happens next year. I mean, this but, year. But, <laughs> but in the last year, the other Shuto shows, I see a lot of empty, you know, seats and stuff. So it's not like oh, yeah. they're doing well on the gates. So yeah. I don't know. We'll see. I, I hope they find something, you know. And real quickly, and you, since you mentioned Pancras, one yeah. Pancras venue, Studio Coast, closed down. Because and of the pandemic. New venue, <laughs> new venue in Takadano Baba, which is a like a banquet hall, right? So Right. I'm actually excited about that because as much as I like New Pier Hall, it was like super mm-hmm. out of the way. Oh, it was and hard. It was like on the opposite side of Tokyo to where I live. Right. Takadano Baba is pretty middle of everywhere, right? It, yeah. It's accessible, right. And I went to school at Wasa University, which is at Takadano oh, right. Baba. Right. So where nice all the ramen shops are there too. <laughs> right? Exactly. And I think the train station plays the theme song to Rocket Man. What's his name? Oh, yeah, it is Osama Tezuka. Yes, exactly. Yeah, uh, it's the uh, Astro. Astro, yes, exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. That's where that the, the Takanobaba is taking. That's where the lab is. You know. Exactly. Yeah. No, no. Yeah, I, I love Takanobaba. I like Pancras because they've always found. Right? Yeah. Pancras has always found fun little cool, like not right. little, but fun, cool venues to have their exactly, unique environments right. at. Yep. I'm excited to go check it out. Right. And I think to the Japanese, hardcore Japanese MMA fans, to finish this episode, I'm going to give you one little scoop. I think Pancras will make another announcement to surprise fans. Oh. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. So let's see, right? You know, I'm really looking forward to hear that announcement. And my only Pancras announcement would be that I am trying to plan a trip where I'm going to drive to Sendai uh-huh. and interview both Karen and Nori. Please, to please. Make please. Team Prava more, I can't even say the name, Team Pravjara <laughs> talent. <laughs> they need more content, and I am going out of my way to try to make it. Yeah, I'm telling you, that Nori girl, she should, and again, she may turn out to be a pretty good one, so she should be training in a better environment. I'm sorry. Yeah. But no, that's I really why I'm do. going up there. I have so many questions. Like, just yeah. personally, I have so many questions. I'm like, where are you training? Like, what the yeah. hell is going I mean, on? Well, I have one big question. How come they're not doing YouTube? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to go up there and just be like, I need to know. I need answers. So I'm trying to get it together. 
right now I'm scrapping together a Saudi Oshima video I did mm -hmm. and making subtitles for a 30 minute long interview is just destroying my soul. So, but then I will be revived by Team Pravzara when Please. I go up to Sendai. Very interesting. You should even videotape the interviews. And, oh. Can you videotape? I want to bring my wife along and just say, videotape everything. Right, yeah, like <laughs> and even places they sleep. I would love to see that, you know. It's so many questions, right? So many. <laughs> oh my god, I and he, tell me right now, you should like I told you, you should pitch this to Netflix. <laughs> like, there's this team, and there's this team in Sendai that needs to be there, needs to be a reality show. It has to, I, I, you know, I'm very looking forward to see that. Yeah. Anyway, so, so this doesn't work. This up, you know. I got to still eating dinner. My wife is looking at me, so <laughs> judging you. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. So let's talk again in two weeks. Perfect. All right. Great. And thank you for everybody for listening to us for almost yeah. ninety minutes today. A happy new year for everyone. Happy new year and happy new year to everybody listening to our show. Yep. Thank you. All right. Bye -bye. So see you in two weeks, Charlie. Yep. Two weeks. Bye bye.